Welcome to another episode of Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karras. Karis on Crime explores criminal justice issues and cases in the news. Send me your questions and your ideas. You can post them on the forum on karisoncrime.com if you're a member or on social media. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Karis on Crime. My Facebook page is my name, Beth Karras. Today's guest is a criminal defense attorney from Nashville, Tennessee, whom I met years ago when I covered a trial of his. Dan Warlick has had a successful career as a trial attorney in Tennessee, but he had another career, a job before he was an attorney, also in Tennessee, and I want to talk to him about that. So welcome, Dan Warlick. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about that job before you were an attorney. Well, I was the chief medical investigator for the state and county medical examiner's office, uh, about seven years down in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, was where the office was located. I studied pathology and uh, participated each day in the death investigations of approximately 3,500 people a year who died in and around Memphis. That included homicides, suicides, accidental deaths, unknown deaths, and uh, a whole lot of people who just died while unattended by a physician and there was no one who could certify the cause of death, so they, they also came to the medical examiner's office. So how long did you do this? I did it from 1973 through 1979. And why did you leave? Well, I was studying forensic pathology, and that intersects with uh, lawyers and the law on a daily basis, and uh, I wanted to know more about the law. I kind of felt like a lot of the lawyers I dealt with were creating problems instead of solving them. So I just signed up to take a few law school classes, which would dovetail in with my education in forensic pathology. And so I applied for and got accepted to law school and with the intention of just going for a year or so so I could flesh out my forensic pathology credentials. But... I was really intrigued by the way the law worked once I understood it and elected to complete my law school education. And uh, then I was very fortunate with the first few years of law practice, and that resulted in me uh, staying with that job. And your focus has been criminal law, right? Well, no. uh, I do criminal cases. I've tried a lot of high-profile, big criminal cases, uh, but my... uh, Practice actually is focused around anywhere that the uh, law intersects with medicine. Uh, Many of the medical cases or murder cases I have tried uh, revolved around a medical question. Uh, Frequently, uh, the defense has been that there was absolutely no murder in a given case, rather a natural death that appeared to be a murder. So I have defended people, the case you and I worked on together, was a case where ultimately I believe no one believed there had been a murder at all. So uh, that's the kind of case I try. I also represent a lot of physicians and a lot of lawyers uh, in their uh, licensure defense and in malpractice cases. And the case that I covered of yours where I met you was a, a woman who was accused of killing her husband, giving him too many drugs, poison to kill him. Uh, so man or a death was the issue. Was it a homicide, death at the hands of another, or was it an accident? 
absolutely. <laughs> That's the type of case that I've handled a lot. And uh, I, you left out one salient point, which was she also was a nurse. Right. So the indices of suspicion was extremely high with the presumption that as a nurse, if she wanted to poison her husband, she would know how to do that better than anybody. So what uh, really piqued my interest in wanting to talk to you today is uh, a case that we have talked about. That case that you handled as a death investigator involved the death of Elvis Presley. Can you take us back to the day that he died, August 16th, 1977? It was, uh, it was late in the afternoon in uh, August in Memphis. is a harsh time on the, on the people physically because... Frequently, the temperatures above 90 and and even 100, and the humidity with the Mississippi River rolling right through town is extremely high. I had been working on a homicide with two sheriff's deputies, and when I returned to the uh, office, uh, there was a lot of buzz in the office. One of my one of the pathologists I work with handed me a note indicating uh, ultimately that. Elvis Presley uh, was across the street in the emergency room of the Baptist Memorial Hospital and that he was DOA and that the uh, suspicion of uh, drug overdose had been raised by whom I did not know at that time. But I knew in a case like that uh, that the medical examiner's office had to assume jurisdiction uh, jurisdiction and uh, take over the case before any of the evidence was destroyed. This would have been uh, in that category of someone who died suddenly when in apparent health. And by our statute, by our law in Tennessee, a case of that nature has to be investigated by the medical examiner's office. So I immediately walked across the street. Uh, my office was in the John Gaston Hospital, which is the large, was the large city hospital in Memphis at the time, and I just walked across the street to where the Baptist Hospital was, and police officers met me there and, and uh, went on in and uh, took custody of the body. And uh, from there, I went on out. Once I knew it was safe and that uh, appropriate protocol would be followed, I went out immediately to uh, Graceland to observe the scene, photograph it, and talk to any witnesses that were out there. Were you by so, yourself? No, I was accompanied by a homicide detective as well as a member of the Attorney General's office there in uh, Memphis. Did the media know about it yet? Oh, when I walked over to the Baptist Hospital, there was a, a throng of... I, I'm not... I didn't count them, but I have every reason to believe that Close to a thousand people had already gathered outside the uh, the emergency room uh, doors. There, uh, word got out fairly quick that he, I don't know if they knew uh, Elvis was dead yet, but just the fact that he had been rushed to the hospital generated a tremendous amount of public interest. So uh, there were people outside the house at Graceland too. Now there were always a lot of people outside of Graceland because it's a big tourist attraction and folks would stop there, but I believe the crowd had already started to gather in light of the allegation that he was dead, dying, injured, or ill, and that uh, 
people just had a, a tremendous curiosity about Elvis. For people who were not alive when Elvis Presley lived, and he lived between 1935 and 1977, can you describe like who he was to music and to Nashville to, or to well, Memphis, to Tennessee? You know, that is a kind of a generation-specific question. Uh, I thought he was the first absolute superstar rock and roll idol. Uh, later on in my life, I, uh, in conversations with other people, including my father, my father indicated to me that and during his lifetime uh, there had been a couple of people of that type of stature uh, uh, that had uh, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and those folks. But I think because of electronic media, now that we didn't have Facebook or uh, the Internet at that time, but just because there was so much more and rapid uh, news coverage that every time Elvis Presley did uh, performed or did anything that drew the national attention, it was highly publicized. So he was the first absolute rock and roll star. He was, and, and retrospectively, he seemed to be bigger than the Beatles, who were the first big hot dog rock and rollers of my uh, generation. And then later on, Michael Jackson was that famous. I haven't seen anybody or heard of anybody lately. There are all sorts of stars, but his stardom transcended just what had ever had happened before. And uh, Elvis Presley had lived his entire life kind of uh, wrapped up in or cloaked in protection because people would just, throngs would just gather around him uh, if he went out. So he was uh, had done things like if he wanted to go to the movie, he would rent the movie theater for 3 in the morning rent the whole thing and go there with his friends. And he had a lot. I knew all the policemen because of being in the medical examiner's business. And uh, they they would get a lot of extra work at night working at a Presley detail, just providing security for he and his friends if they wanted to go somewhere. So he was about as famous as anybody ever has been uh, in my entire life. And I'm in my late 60s now, so. That's who he was. He he always maintained roots in Tennessee, even though I mean he did have a home in Los Angeles, and I, I visited that home at a party by a you know subsequent owner a couple of years ago. He also had a home in uh, Denver at one time, and uh, he had a home or at least a, a residence in a hotel in uh, Las Vegas. You know he would uh, book himself into or get booked into playing the casinos out there. But when he was there, he was there for for a long period of time, months on end, and he would live there. And uh, so he lived around a lot of places. But he always maintained his primary residence, his big home there uh, at Graceland, which uh, is a large home at south of downtown Memphis that was named after his uh, after his mom, Grace. So let's... Let's go back to where you were um, on the day he died, August 16, 1977. After you left uh, the hospital, you went to Graceland. So what did you find? Well, I, I found some really sad people. When I walked in the front door, his father was there and on the phone with somebody I did not know, but he was informing that person on the phone, and his actual words were, my baby has died, and then he broke down crying himself. You know, I dealt with death every day in the medical examiner's uh, role, and uh, it's sad every time, but 
you can't really get bogged down in it uh, personally because if you're emotionally invested in the case, you're not a very good investigator. You, you may not see or notice things that you would if you're detached and totally professional about it. But And as a rule, we, we never investigated in, in the office I worked in uh, the death of an individual who you knew. If you knew the person, somebody else took care of that case. Somebody else did the autopsy. Somebody else did the investigation. But uh, with Elvis Presley, we all felt like we knew him because we'd seen him you know, 15 feet tall up in front of us on a TV screen or a movie uh, screen our entire life. He was bigger than life, and so it was a sad occasion. So when I got there, there suddenly, instead of being a, a drug overdose or a car accident victim or one of the many categories of investigations we were involved with, the first thing I was reminded of, he was somebody's son because his dad was right there in mourning and his uh, daughter was in a, a close by room and I saw her as well and and uh, she was being attended to by a lady in a nurse's uniform. Uh, who I later believe was uh, somebody that worked at the house, not necessarily a nurse, but and so again, it was a, uh, it was just a sad situation because every death is sad, but uh, if they're personal in some regard, you take them uh, in a different light. Where so I saw all of this happening around me when I first got there. And and where were you led in the house to the scene of where he died? Well, I was. It was upstairs. Uh, I'm going to give you a little quick side story. Uh, I had known uh, one of Elvis's bodyguards who lived in the same apartment complex that I did. And uh, I had been uh, on many occasions invited to have a date and uh, bring a date and go over to visit, meet Elvis Presley. And I'd actually never taken advantage of that. But I'd also heard, however, that... Uh, the routine was for uh, several people to get invited to bring their girlfriends over, and then Elvis would come down sometime late in the evening after he'd sat around the jungle room or one of the exotic settings in his house, and uh, he'd kind of sort through the girls, and, and whichever ones he was interested in talking to or wanted to uh, be uh, with, he would take them upstairs. Nobody else ever got to go upstairs. And so you might sit downstairs and twiddle your thumbs for hours while Elvis visited with your date. I wasn't too much into that, but so I never went. But so I went straight upstairs uh, to his to his first room on the right is was his office. Uh, I remember uh, it was kind of paneled in green naugahyde. And there was a lot of shag carpeting around. Kind of reminded me, at a later date, of living in Las Vegas. All I mean, everything was bright colors and, and shag carpet and faux leather, and it didn't look anything like my apartment. But but that was the style at the time for people who had a lot of money. It was it very may well have been, but I did not run with as a regular rule with uh, people who had that kind of money. So it was kind of unusual to me. Uh, he had a desk, a regular office desk, and it had a sign on it. I think it said the boss on the top of it. 
And uh, then adjacent to that was his bedroom. And I went into his bedroom, hadn't seen anything like that before either. Had a, a wall of TVs in there. Uh, later on, I heard the stories. These were the infamous TVs that if he got mad at, he would shoot at. Then uh, over to the side, more toward the center of the house, off the bedroom was uh, a bathroom, combination bathroom and wardrobe center. Uh, initially, the bathroom was on the, uh, the sinks and that sort of thing were on the right and the uh, commode on the left. Uh, there again, something else you don't really see every day, at least in those days. He had uh, two phones on the wall by the commode. One was red and one was black. And the uh, porcelain on the commode and the fixtures was black. Then he had a large uh, shower, uh, probably five, six feet around. It was so big it did not have to have a, a shower curtain with it to, get to control the water. And in the middle of it was a big vinyl uh, lounge chair. You could probably uh, sit down in there and just let water hit you for hours on end. Uh, and I'm not casting dispersions toward him, but if you were drunk or just worn out, I mean, you could just go in there. I, I'd never seen a lounge and a shower combination like that, but that was there. But beyond that were uh, rows and rows of uh, clothing on uh, racks, you know, costumes of various and sundry types. And so I went up and uh, I was taken to the uh, bathroom area because that's where he'd been found. And I went up there to photograph and take pictures and to document the evidence up there. It's time for a break. You're listening to Karis on Crime. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karis, and I'm talking to Nashville criminal defense attorney Dan Warlick, who was an investigator for the Tennessee medical examiner before he became a lawyer. He's sharing his story of the day Elvis Presley died and the aftermath. So you were just describing the basically the master bedroom, his clothing, the bathroom. Uh, what did you what did you find in terms of like where he was when he died? Well, he, he had died uh, while he was on the commode. And interestingly, that was not a, a phenomenon that I was unfamiliar with. Frequently, it turns out that people who were having a heart attack, a myocardial, myocardial infarction, uh, feel constipated or pressure in their abdomen and will go to try to use the bathroom when, in fact, they're having a heart attack. And... I've seen a lot of folks who actually died on the on the commode, uh, so that was not unusual for me. But I noticed as I went in there, there were a couple of uh, there was some detritus of uh, the resuscitation efforts. There were a couple of syringes that actually are still metal frames that held uh, cartridges that you would insert stuff like sodium bicarbonate or some of the drugs we use for resuscitation. And I saw those and, and documented that those were there. Uh, because I, when I had first been contacted, uh, the specter or the question of a 
potential drug overdose had been raised. I was also inventorying, paying close attention, as you would in any case anyway, to whether or not there was any evidence of inappropriate use of drugs or, or, or weapons or any indices of foul play. Uh, so I also uh, interviewed Ginger Alden, who was the last person to see Elvis alive. That was his girlfriend at the time. And I interviewed uh, Dr. Nicopolis. I did both of those interviews in Elvis's office. The same uh, day? The same day, yeah, absolutely. And was his doctor there? He had come back. Elvis had been summoned when they found him uh, on the bathroom floor. And he'd gotten there before the ambulance, or, or at about the same time. And he was participating in and contributing to the uh, resuscitative effort, which is appropriate. Right. Okay. And, uh, so you interviewed his girlfriend at the time, and you interviewed right. Doctor Nick. Well, he's known. He was known as Doctor Nick. His name. Yeah, was... Everybody knew Doctor Nick as Doctor Nick. That, that's not a derogatory term, as far as he was ever concerned. And he had been his doctor, according to my research, for ten years. His name is George Nicopolis. Well, he passed away about a, year, right. a year ago. Passed away last year. Right. Okay. And he was from Tennessee as well. He was. He was. Uh, he was one of the kindest, caring people that I ever met. Did he overprescribe drugs, though, to Elvis? He. He. I mean, he had a lot of prescriptions. Well, that's a, a question that's been hanging out there for forever. Uh, I'm surprised and amazed at how many people have formulated an absolute opinion based on no evidence about what happened. But uh, he certainly prescribed more uh, drugs of all sorts of types to Elvis than most average people would receive from their physician. Uh, I would point out, however, there was nothing average about Elvis Presley. You know, if Elvis was going to take off on a trip or on a tour or go anywhere, and he owned his own jet airplane. Uh, that was a, a uncommon in those days for anybody to actually own their own airplane, but jet anyway. And so I think uh, Dr. Nicopolis would prescribe enough narcotics to have a uh, pharmacopoeia available for Elvis if he wasn't going to be back in town. Or, and, and Dr. Nick would frequently go on these trips with him wherever he went. And uh, so he wasn't routinely ordering drugs just for use uh, for a cold that week or a problem that was acute. So I had to give him a little credit there for having not necessarily had the average patient for whom you uh, would just write normal prescriptions. Additionally, there was the problem that Elvis exerted a tremendous amount of authority and control over the people in his employee and just over the general public. You know, Elvis could probably ask a total stranger to, to go to cross the country for him and pick up a ham sandwich. And, and most of these fans were so avid, they would do that just to be close to Elvis. So... Nick was all. Doctor Nick was also well aware of the fact that if he uh, didn't 
control Elvis's drug usage and intake uh, medically that it would probably happen uh, outside of the uh, confines of him making sure what Elvis was taking. And Now, I want to make this clear, too. There was never an indication in any of my investigations or research and knowing a lot of people who knew Elvis Presley well that he did or used illegal drugs. His drug issues were all, all centered around uh, drugs that are, are available only through a pharmacy and only through prescription. And uh, he was not out buying and or using street drugs at any time, to so my knowledge. The drugs he used treated insomnia, pain, things like that, right? Everything. I so, mean, he had a long history okay. of gastrointestinal problems that were painful. All right. Uh, so, you know, I was reading um, I was reading in preparation for talking to you about this and that he um, maybe he had a trauma head trauma in 1967 when he fell, hit his head, and then that eventually caused an autoimmune disease, which contributed to his obesity and the, the gastrointestinal problems. I don't know if you have an opinion about that, but I do, in, in conjunction with all this stuff, want to ask you about what your investigation concluded and what well, did the medical examiner's office conclude after the autopsy? Well, I was present at the autopsy. I also interviewed all the folks that were involved in this case. I doubt that there was anybody who had all the information then or now available to them that I was made privy to by way of my position at the time. I have no, you know, I was at the autopsy. I, I don't remember ever seeing in any shape or form, either under uh, at the autopsy, when you look at what we call gross views of it, not gross as in y icky, but rather gross that, when you look at organs in their natural state that have been removed, that we call that the gross observation as opposed to a microscopic observation. But I also was privy to the microscopic observation, and I, I never saw or even had it recommended that if there was any uh, brain trauma that led to his uh, any of his subsequent problems. He had a history of uh, heart disease that nobody's aware of, or generally wasn't aware of. And uh, when you talk about an etiology or a cause for obesity, since about half of our adult population in this country is obese, I think that may be a fairly naturally occurring phenomena that if you sh shouldn't just lightly try to assign a, a secondary cause to it, uh, like a head injury. But the, he didn't have anything like that. He had uh, chronic bowel problems and chronic uh, uh, heart problems. And he was uh, overweight at the time of his death, but not he didn't suffer from something you would call exogenous obesity. He, he, he wasn't that heavy. I've seen pictures. I don't know where the pictures came from of what he supposedly looked at at or about the time of his death, and uh, he wasn't that heavy. He, he just wasn't that heavy. Do, do you remember what his weight was by any chance? Cause I, I had... too, 205 pounds. Oh, how, how, what's that again? He was 5'10 and weighed 205 pounds. 205? Yeah. I read an that, article. That's a big boy, but, uh, you know, I've heard, yeah. No, no, I read an article that said he was 350 pounds at autopsy. Yeah, well, that's... Not most true. Most of the articles I've read about Elvis, I'd start off with 
once upon a time in a land far, far away <laughs> because they're not generally based on uh, agreed upon or uh, legitimate facts. So he was heavy, but uh, 205 and 510 is not that heavy. No, not at all. So, so that's but he had exaggerations. Bowel, but he had bowel problems, right? You had described something to me which was rather shocking. He did, and that became evident at autopsy. Because he had a condition, not a disease, but a condition uh, that we refer to as organomegaly. His internal organs were large, very large, compared to uh, normal folks. That doesn't mean they didn't work, because uh, you can have organomegaly, and if you got a big liver, it just probably works better or, or more efficiently than one that's smaller. It's just like a bigger engine in a car. It climbs hills easier. But uh, he also had a, a very, very large bowel that uh, I think uh, contributed uh, significantly to his death. Uh, but also, it, the results, and you wanted to know what the bottom line was, Elvis took a lot of uh, drugs to uh, keep him awake or put him to sleep. Normally, uh, people have what we call a, a circadian uh, rhythm, which is your uh, body tells you when to wake up and go to sleep. And I think in the natural state, most of us depend upon uh, sunlight. And when the day starts and stops, to tell us when it's time to go to bed and time to get up. But I was reminding you that if he wanted to go out and uh, eat, he might have to rent a restaurant to st and stay open, which they would do, so he could eat at 3 in the morning or go to a movie. They even opened the uh, the carousel and the rides at the, at the amusement park in Memphis for Elvis and his friends to go to in the middle of the night. So if he wanted to get up and go do things, he could take a pill. Uh, we refer to them as uppers or amphetamines uh, so that he could be up and <coughs> functioning. But if it was 10 o'clock in the morning when he and his buddies came in and he had something to do that evening and he needed to get some sleep, he could get chemical assistance and going to sleep as well. So rather than painting a picture of someone who was breaking out in a cold sweat and worrying about not having their next drug in the next 20 minutes, what we think of as classical addiction, uh, he just had drugs available for him to get up and go to sleep anytime he wanted to. He could get himself up and he could go to sleep. Well, chronic use of those drugs takes a significant toll on your uh, digestive system because they affect it. Uh, I've seen ads that are on TV now constantly for uh, drugs and compounds that uh, allow people to uh, avoid opiate-induced constipation. And uh, he had that. You used enough uh, opiates to go to sleep. Every time you use them, your uh, bowel shuts down, and so you can easily develop constipation. And so his bowel, and particularly on the day he died, was so impacted that he couldn't uh, couldn't actually have a bowel movement. And I think that uh, when he was 
restraining uh, on the commode that he died as a result of that. You, you, if you strain hard enough, you compress the major artery that goes from your heart to the lower half of your body. Uh, it's your abdominal aorta and your uh, autonomic nervous system. Uh, it's not one. It's not the part of your nervous system where you think things through. It uh, responds on its own. Uh, will shut your heart down if there's a, a back pressure. It happens when we have something called a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot in your lung. Uh, that'll cause your heart to stop because it senses back pressure in the wrong place, so to speak. And so that's what I thought uh, caused him to die. I measured the distance between the base of the commode and, and his feet uh, from where he lay. I, there was still an indication on the floor there of exactly where he had been. And uh, so I measured that and figured out how far he was from the commode. And so he had, he had not fallen asleep or fallen off the commode like you would if you had a classical drug overdose. Uh, so uh, I wasn't looking and uh, leaning in that direction. But he was reading. He threw a book. He knocked down some things that were uh, over on his lavatory with that book. And it was uh, a book that was, uh, uh, was not the kind of thing you would uh, go to sleep reading. I've heard it was the Bible. It was not the Bible. And uh, so I came to the conclusion that he compressed his aorta and, and had a cardiac shutdown. Felt that happen. That would be painful uh, for a short period of time, but you'd feel it. And then uh, stood up, took about two and a half steps, and fell over on his side, which is that's consistent exactly with how you would expect someone who is suffering the Valsalva maneuver to, uh, to respond. And so I'm pretty sure that's what and how he died. I was also privy to the uh, toxicology results. And although I had heard uh, it later reported that he had somewhere between, between 10 and 12 differing uh, drugs in his system, he actually had four. He had the metabolites of all four of those, which could add up to a larger number, but any drug is metabolized, which is mean burned up or processed through your body, and it turns into three or four different compounds. Sometimes the drug itself is not a very powerful or active uh, component of what's going on as much as the metabolites are. So and are you saying he had to, uh, like four metabolites or four? He had four compounds with at least six to eight other uh, metabolites of those compounds. Not everything therapeutic levels? Uh there was nothing at a toxic level. Uh, now, toxic is the level that it makes you sick. That the toxic, you know, the root word there is poison. So he had nothing at a toxic level. And none of these drugs uh, taken together would have a fatal interaction? It had not been previously recorded in medical literature if it did. So, you know, we're not going to create new science right there on the, <laughs> that would be pure speculation. And uh, they were all, uh, he'd been to the dentist that afternoon at 2 o'clock, 
and uh, he'd been given two of the drugs by the dentist. They were painkillers, but they were he was given to those while he was undergoing dental procedures. That's a pretty standard effect. And then he had two other drugs that uh, he was taking uh, to help with his other problems that Dr. Nicopolis had ordered, but these weren't really necessarily drugs of abuse. You know, I took nasal swabs. I looked carefully to see. I didn't know him personally. I, and in light of what I saw every day, I took nasal swabs. To, I was looking for cocaine, just anything, amphetamines, anything. We looked, did an exhaustive search. And when you sign a death certificate in the medical examiner's office, you are used to defending what you have done in court. If you say it was a homicide, uh, somebody may well get prosecuted for a homicide, and you better know what you're talking about and be able to back it up in court. So we were not then, nor do I know of any medical examiner's office now that is in the business of rank speculation with regard to what a cause of death might be. You put down what you can prove and what you believe you can show to a legal burden and you certainly don't go around accusing people of dying of drug overdoses because they have an unusual combination or level of drugs in their system that nobody really has necessarily uh, seen before uh, or looked at uh, and from a forensic viewpoint. But we certainly didn't want to assign a cause of death to somebody that uh, this was kind of an indictment that he died from his from his from a drug overdose without having some proof. So what if did we'd the had the proof, we would have said that, believe me. Well what did the autopsy report and the death certificate say then for cause and manner? Well the uh, they said that he died of a cardiac arrhythmia. Now that's kind of a that's a slight cop out in my view. I didn't sign that one. I didn't write that one. But the point was Cardiac arrhythmia literally means an improper heartbeat. A very common form of cardiac arrhythmia is cardiac standstill. That is to say that everybody who's dead has an irregular heartbeat, asystole. And, you know, it's not beating. It stops. Your yeah, heart stops. so it stopped. So you can't really consider that much of a cause of death. But uh, ultimately, his death was ruled... There are two things you put on a death certificate, the cause of death and the manner of death. Cause might be liver failure, it might be cancer, heart attack, poisoning, whatever. But the second one, which is just as important and probably more so from a medical examiner's viewpoint, is the manner, and that's going to be homicide, suicide, accident, unknown, natural, that sort of thing. And he was classified as a natural death. He'd been hospitalized many times before with cardiac arrhythmias, improper, uh, uh, or not improper, it sounds like I'm judging it, but a heartbeat that was not regular and uh, enough so to make him sick, make him have to come to the hospital and get it treated. And also uh, constantly in there with uh, bowel problems. Now, to, to be totally... Frank and, and completely uh, complete the picture here. I, I believe that perhaps his uh, lifestyle and use of those uh, uppers and downers to to avoid having a circadian rhythm or living 
uh, you know, sleeping eight and up 16 like most of us do, that that had a, a, an effect on him. That's one of the reasons his GI system was messed up. But he didn't overdose on those drugs. He didn't take too many of them at one time. Which would, have made, which would have made it an accident or a suicide, depending on his state of mind. That's right. Exactly. But we, we could not assign anything like that to this situation. Uh, you know, a guy who works 16 hours a day in a high-pressure job uh, is more likely to have a heart attack than somebody who's working the toll booth at, on the highway. And so you're going to say the guy who has the high-pressure job and uh, ends up having a heart attack, was that suicide? Because he should have known better. No, you don't. That, you know, he died of his heart disease, and that's what we call it. But uh, in, in this case, we didn't have enough to say anything other than here's a man with a history of being uh, sick. Here's a man who doesn't have uh, toxic levels of drugs. And remember, toxic is one level below lethal you know and he lethal is the level that is known to kill you and and elvis presley didn't have anything even remotely close to lethal in his system was there any one or any investigative body that took a second look at your conclusions the medical examiner's conclusions uh, because of the the drugs that had been prescribed to him did anyone take issue with your conclusion well you've asked two different questions did somebody take issue? They sure did. Uh, did some? Was there uh, a further investigation? I don't believe so. The uh, pathology staff at uh, the Baptist Hospital believed that he died from something called polypharmacy. Too many uh, drugs of different kinds at one time. Uh, However, the medical examiner's office was charged with signing that death certificate and ruling on that death. And we simply could not uh, state that for the first time ever in recorded medical history, somebody with these drug levels that aren't even at the toxic level has died from them. This was not a leap that we, weren't, that we were willing to take over at the medical examiner's office. Dr. Francisco had been... Uh, a medical examiner for a long time, uh, was a good one, uh, knew what he was doing, and, but he also understood the, the role of the medical examiner. You know, speculating about somebody's cause of death is, is not uh, an endeavor in which people ought to engage because it, it has dramatic consequences on them. You know, how many times have I been approached by people to try to prove that their child had an accidental overdose instead of a suicidal overdose. Uh, sometimes the difference is millions of dollars. Suicides are not compensable necessarily, and uh, accidents are. They're, they pay double indemnity. So those issues are pretty significant, and we had a lot of experience with that over at the medical examiner's office because uh, those death certificates processed by that office, uh, there were... About 35,000 of them when I was there, and most physicians don't have that many patients in their career, let alone those many that died that they have to sign for. And he was so young. He was only 42. Let me ask you a question about the autopsy. Where was it conducted? 
it was done at the uh, lab in the Baptist Hospital. Normally we would do that over at the medical examiner's office in our own morgue, but there were so many people outside, thousands, that we felt like trying to move uh, his body through that crowd would create a bigger problem. So we just, uh, Dr. Francisco and I both crossed the street and uh, did the autopsy there at the Baptist with the Baptist staff in attendance. Now, there was another issue uh, during the course of your investigation. You, yeah, Something happened to your notes, right? What, what happened? What was that story? Yeah, I had made it. I kept a little three-ring binder, small one, like five inches in my lab coat, and I left it in my car that night uh, when I went home out in the periphery of uh, Memphis. I never thought about that being an issue, and when I woke up the next morning, it was gone. I don't know if anybody could even read my writing. I'd like to see that again someday because I knew what I had written down. It just happened so recently I could duplicate them. But uh, somebody stole them right out of my car. Your notes and your lab coat, right? No, no, I, they didn't get my lab coat. I, I still had it. It's just my notes. Wow. Okay, but did you ever see them again, like images online or anything? Never did. I, I don't want to discuss anything that's really humiliating to him, you know, God rest his soul. But, you know, if he had, if he had known how to control his, you know, his constipation. I mean, he might have been alive. Well, I suppose he, uh, he might have been, but I can't say that. You, you know how old his mother was when she died? No. She was 32. Oh. Excuse me, 42. Same age. In fact, they lived almost the same identical time on Earth. And I'm, uh, after studying pathology for seven years, and I still... Uh, involve myself in medical issues on a daily basis, I'm a big believer that genetics are one of the, if not the most significant underlying factor on how our bodies behave and act over our lifetime. You can spend a lot of time and effort trying to overcome your genetic propensities. But just as an example, uh, think about, uh, and scientists will bear me out on this, Alcoholism appears to be an inherited trait. I mean, if, you're, if your parents were alcoholics, uh, you'd do well to, to abstain completely from the use of alcohol. You, you, well, but, there's a predisposition to ha- having an addictive personality or something? You're saying? Absolutely, and, and that's because the way alcohol is metabolized in your body uh, can affect your brain differently, and there's some... Endomorphins, there are some chemical reactions that happen in the brain that make alcohol a lot more appealing to some than others, Mm -hmm. just about how it responds. But you also know that if your father and your two uncles died before they were uh, 55 from a heart attack, you probably got a little issue there that you ought to start uh, watching your cholesterol the day you're born. Right. You know, and, and lay off the fatty foods and, and get a lot of exercise. So we know that sort of thing happens. And and Elvis didn't come from a long line of uh, extremely healthy people either. So when you ask me, would he probably been alive if he'd controlled his bowel movement? That'd be such rank speculation. And I'm not willing to take that leap of faith. I think that'd require a, a quantum leap in logic to be able to say that. But it's a question that one can ask. Did it affect his uh, the overall outcome, it easily could have. 
Could we ever prove that? No. Fair enough. You know, I had interviewed a fellow Tennessean last year, uh, and I posted the interview um, on my podcast last week. It's with Paulette Sutton. She's a bloodstain pattern analysis expert. But at the time of Elvis's death, she was working in a lab. And she we talked briefly at the end of the interview about Elvis. And um, she said what you said, you know, that his blood did not have, you know, lethal, toxic, lethal or toxic levels of, of drugs. He did not die from a drug cocktail. Um, but I... I was t- talking to her about um, the condition of his, his organs and, and his bowel, and, and again, not to be humiliating, but I just wanted to confirm what, because I said I wasn't sure, you know, she had never heard this, that he had a buildup of like a chalky substance um, in, in his colon, which obviously was contributing to the, uh, to the constipation. That's true, right? That's absolutely true, but that's been published in three or four books uh, about his death, and it was discussed last year on British TV, and and they made a special about that on, on in British TV about his dietary demands and what effect, if any, that may have had on his on his death. So, yeah, that's out in the public domain, and that's absolutely true. And it was like a half an inch or an inch. No, 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 no. He had a, a mega colon, distended colon, where most people's colon might be, uh, if if full of feces, and that's what it's made for is to process. That's what your colon does, process your bowel uh, content. Uh, his was probably five to six inches across. Yeah, in and diameter. Was, he could not, he was. He would have had to have medical assistance yeah. to evacuate his colon. Yeah, very sad. Yeah. So um, I, I've taken more of your time than I said I would. You know, I always try to I keep these to a half hour. We've already gone over almost 20 minutes. Uh, and I wanted to ask you more about the doctor, but you say the doctor wasn't complicit. I know he lost his license years later for overprescribing. He did, but that was an interesting story. Doctor, Dr. Nick, as I said, was one of the kindest people. He was a graduate of Vanderbilt Medical School. Vanderbilt Medical School is not in the habit or custom of graduating fools from its medical school. It's a top-flight medical school with a wonderful reputation. But Dr. Nick uh, was one of the people that they like to refer to now as somewhat codependent. Uh, He was the first doctor I knew of in the Memphis area who would even treat patients with AIDS back in the days when it was first out, and it was going to be the scourge of the earth before we had all these wonderful uh, He didn't bat an eye. He would take them on, and he never he never cared uh, to uh, try to get rich off of it either. You know, if they needed him, he was there. He was that kind of guy. He was really a, just a kind, wonderful gentleman, but... Uh, then, then combine that, however, with people who are drug seekers, uh, people who have true addictions can be some of the most manipulative folks on the face of the earth. Everybody likes to hate them, but you got to remember drug addiction itself is a disease. And, you know, they're doing naturally what that disease causes people to do, which is try to keep their drugs slowing. And so Dr. Nick would have people in his office who would hear that he could help them and 
uh, they would be in his office crying day in and day out, and he would tell them, all right, this is the last time, but now you got to go to rehab, and you got to promise me you're going to do this and do that. And Dr. Nick had problems uh, turning those people away. They'd come back. And you really wouldn't be that all surprised if they came back and couldn't stick with the program. But he would say, all right, I'll help you again, but you got to try again. You've got to go address this situation. But we're right now in the throes of a, a horrible situation where thousands of people are dying from drugs. But we also have thousands of people who have horrendous uh illnesses that generate more pain and suffering than you can tolerate, and every last one of them, I talk to hundreds of them, feel like they're being treated like they're some kind of leper. Even leprosy, Hansen's disease, is a, uh, it's just a good example. People don't volunteer to get that, and they don't get it even because of a reckless lifestyle if you want to be one of the, what I call blamers, but they have it, yet we treat them. We have the term, you know, you don't want to be a leper. Well, that's somebody that has a disease. We don't say you don't want to be a uh, diabetic, and you know, fool that you are, cause yourself to be a diabetic or to have COPD. Or uh, People have their illnesses, and right now it's difficult to get them treated. So Dr. Nick uh, was in that first wave of people who was trying to deal with the situation and, and having a rough time doing it, and ultimately he lost his license. But he did not lose his license because, actually because of the Elvis Presley case, but it hung over him like a hatchet for the rest of his life. He, uh, I remember him being so saddened one year because, the, uh, the year Elvis died, because the costume du jour uh, for kids in the uh, at Halloween was wear a lab coat that said Dr. Nick and have a jar full of M&M's with him, you know, that um, was, and here was this guy that had tried I, so hard to help people. Yeah, I think somebody in Michael Jackson's life had had warned Michael Jackson's doctor, who eventually was convicted of killing him uh, when he was first hired, uh, don't be like Dr. Nick, something like that. Oh, yeah, and so, you know, people who go to medical school and work through it generally are, have a superior intellect or they couldn't get through that. A cascade of uh, challenges, and uh, I think they all are generally good folks trying to be, and uh, when you fall from that level of grace, it's a long, hard fall, and it's hard on you. So, you know, it's time to wrap this up, and I'd like to just ask you one last question on a lighter note, a non-Elvis-related uh, note. Uh, since you live in Nashville, and there are a lot of country western stars down there. I have to ask you, do you ever have any sightings of Keith Urban and Nicole Kidman? Keith Urban and I drove the same identical car for a while. So whenever I would see him out, I would know it was him. And then uh, they are a lovely, lovely folks. One of the things that stars like about Nashville is is that the paparazzi is not allowed here. <laughs> apparently, uh, if if people were rude or aggressive toward our country music stars, they might end up in a serious fist fight with just some of the locals uh, defending the stars. So they feel free to uh, 
manipulate around, you know, live in and around Nashville, and you see them out all the time. You see all these folks out there. Uh, catch them at Starbucks. You might catch them at the hockey game. You might. They just, uh, of course, you catch Carrie Underwood at the hockey game because she's married to one of our stars. But, uh, yeah, you see uh, Keith Urban and, and Nicole Kidman out, and uh, I mean, you don't bother them. And they're very famous, maybe not in the uh, stratosphere that Elvis was in where he had to open up a movie theater in the middle of the night to have a little privacy. But, you know, they're able to live their lives more more normally, which is really good to hear. It is good to hear, but uh, and they are very, very famous and have hordes and throngs of, uh, of stars. Uh, I mean, of fans, but I'm sitting in my office. My office is now on Music Row in Nashville. And right across the street is a, is a company called Big Machine Records. And a gentleman named Scott Borchetta is uh, the basic um, motivating factor behind it. He uh, discovered a young lady uh, that you've heard of, Taylor Swift. Whoa. Now, Taylor Swift has bodyguards and an entourage, and you can't get close to her. But there's that level of that level of endeavor that some people do get so famous, they create it. I mean, I don't think you happen to end up in that situation unless you participate willingly in it somewhat. Right. So, uh, but now there's a lady, there's a star who probably would not feel safe. Uh, you're, you're a prisoner of your own fame and notoriety. But, Miss Karras, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, sir. And, you know, with that, we do need to wrap it up. I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Dan Warlick, and sharing your stories from Tennessee, especially your experience in investigating Elvis's death so many years ago in 1977. Wow, the anniversary is coming up yeah. the end of this year. It's my pleasure. I always enjoy being around you and enjoy watching you work. You do a great job. Well, thank you. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of Carousel Crime. As always, I welcome your feedback. So post your comments or your questions in the forum on carousoncrime.com if you're a member or on social media. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Carousel Crime. And my Facebook page is my name, Beth Karras. And until the next time, be well. <laughs>